0: Good day listeners, Wine For Me podcast is all about the South African wine industry. I chat with anyone that can offer insight to you and me as to which wineries to visit, where to find great wines, and how do wine producers get to be at the top of their game. Please sit back and enjoy. Today I chat to Tyrrell and Anita Mayberg. Tyrrell and his brother Philip Mayberg are fifth generation of Maybergs on the Jurstenberg farm. After 52 years of no winemaking on the farm, these two brothers started making wine again in 1999. The approach to winemaking took a few turns and twists and today the results can be tasted in their extensive range of quality wines. Tyrell is in charge of winemaking and his lovely wife, Annette, runs everything else that happens here. So Tyrell, tell me, why did you and Philip decided to start winemaking again at Joostenburg?
1: Growing up on the farm we would have these kind of long Sunday lunches with my parents and sometimes with my grandparents and uh, often the, uh, you know, we'd start talking about you know, making wine again on the farm one day and it was this kind of romantic notion. Historically, there was wine, you know, wine was made in, on the farm from about the 1750s until just after the Second World War. So, you know, it's always been part of the farm kind of vibe. And uh, we had these long discussions about maybe one day starting again, but it was more of a kind of a, a, a dream. Um, and then my undergraduate degree at, at, at university was sociology and philosophy, which mm-hmm. um, kind of. Yeah, I didn't really have many career opportunities there. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, uh, so after university, I did a bit of travelling. Once I was overseas, it just seemed obvious that um, you know a career which was linked to to the farm that I grew up on and the the, the area, the Stellenbosch area, the Pahl area, just seemed like a you know a very logical choice. So yeah, there wasn't like any any one reason, but as I got older, I guess. You, know, you start drinking wine and enjoying the whole wine culture and that was definitely part of it.
0: Okay, well, and then tell me just a little bit about all the varietals that you have planted here at Joostenburg.
1: When we started the winemaking side of the farm in 1999, there weren't many red grapes on the farm. Um, we had some Chardonnay, we had some Chenin Blanc and we had a grape called Crucian Blanc which is S.A. Riesling. And uh, we had just started replanting the, the red grapes, so we had some, some Merlot that we would planted the year before. Yeah, but things have really changed, uh, you know, over the years quite significantly. So, at the moment, we have uh, Blanc, the oldest vineyard planted in 1982, so that makes it 37 years old. Wow. Um,
0: oh, those bush vines? Those,
1: are, those are dry farmed okay. bush vines. Okay. And then, on the white side, we also have some Viognier, and then we have a little bit of Rousson and we have a tiny um, Alvarinho uh, vineyard, mm-hmm. which hasn't come into production yet. Okay. And that's, that's a bit more on the experimentation side. Sure. So that's white, and then on the red, the main red grape is uh, Syrah, mm-hmm. and then we have some Cab, some uh, Muvad, a little bit of Turiga Nacional, and some Merlot. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, there's some eclectic um, varietals there which is exciting. Now tell me, you guys do only organic farming at Hustenburg and that was quite a journey. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about why organic and how did that all happen?
1: Actually maybe Anetta should share you know her side of the story because she's very integral to the decision that we made to go organic.
2: When Terrell and I met I was still busy studying and I was busy doing my masters and um, in plant pathology and i was investigating the biological control of botrytis cinerea on wine grapes using other fungi so we were using trichoderma preparations and that's actually working quite well now commercially and interestingly enough during that time i needed to find various sites outside Stellenbosch where i could go and do my experiments and that's how i met (laughs) Tyrol i came to the farm I needed um, some Chardonnay grapes and um, I phoned him up and came to take some samples. Yeah. And do some I'm
1: still work not there. sure if, if that <laughs> vineyard was chosen because of the actual vineyard or because of the farmer. but
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good love story, anyway.
1: Um, I realised that that connection that wine has with, with the earth, um, you know what we call terroir, mm-hmm. is the the major mm-hmm. factor that makes wine, you know, a really special product. And mm-hmm. and I figured that if you if you really take that seriously and you want to kind of protect that link, mm-hmm. then you've got to be you know very careful about what you do to the the environment. And and organic farming mm-hmm. is kind of a logical kind of progression from from that. So basically, I want to make wine which is very true to this little Mm. spot of earth. I'm not trying to say it's the best spot for growing in the world. Mm. Um, I'm just trying to say that, you know, I want the wine to taste like it comes from a specific place. And in order to do that, you know, organic farming makes sense.
0: It wasn't easy though, was it, to be certified organic? Was there a lot of red tape? Yeah, look, it's a...
1: A, for one, it's a it's a three year um, project, a okay. minimum three year project just to get your certification. Okay. So the and the
0: certification came through in twenty twelve. Yeah.
1: So we, so we actually we took a little bit of a kind of a long path. We started some vineyards in two thousand and three, but mm. not all of our vineyards. So we had some experimental vineyards, mm-hmm. and after two or three years, we quite liked the progress we had made there. Mm-hmm. So then we decided to convert the whole farm, but But even then, we weren't doing it sort of officially. We hadn't gone through the certification process because we figured that as long as we're doing the right thing and we can convey Mm. that message to the consumer, you know, that's that's kind of what it takes. But after a while, we realized that the whole certification process definitely has its merits. Mm. And there were some markets that started kind of insisting on it. We also felt that there were some other producers that were kind of talking the talk but not really walking the walk. And but um, you
0: are allowed a little bit of um, sulfites and yeah, something else, but look, it's all natural, right? Yeah,
1: look, organic farming is by no means um, kind of free-range farming. So it is still a monoculture, and there's still a level of of control that's needed in order to get a crop. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't help being organic if you if you don't end up with a crop. You know, the most important thing is, is to have a crop, that's your starting point. So mm-hmm. you are lo- allowed to use certain products, sulphur being one of them, sulphur in the vineyards that is, and you're allowed to use a little bit of copper as well, um, but that amount is, is restricted. Um, but yeah, the sort of broad theory is that uh, the emphasis must be on improving the fertility and the vitality of your soil, mm-hmm. And by doing that, the plant becomes stronger and more resistant to, to diseases and pests. That's kind yeah. of the main thing. And then and then the products that you allow to use are, are kind of on the soft side. Yeah.
0: yeah, and then when you get into the cellar with the winemaking process, you um, you don't like a lot of new oak and you only do natural yeasts, right? Um, yeah. Just, okay. yeah. So, yeah, the whole approach to as little oak as possible? Your philosophy about that?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's um, look, I, I do believe that there are some wines that, that benefit from oak. For example, Cabernet, which has pretty intense tannins. Um, a little bit of new oak does help to kind of tame those tannins. But in, in general, you know, I want my wine to taste, you know, like the grapes and the, the sight. And I think if you use too much New Oak, you know, the wine ends up tasting like New Oak. Oh, <laughs> kind of as simple yeah. as that. So,
0: All right, you already mentioned all your different varietals, there's quite a lot of eclectic ones. Um, and when you look at these different wines you've made over the years, um, can you give us a bit of an indication on the different ranges and how long they mm-hmm. age? Would you recommend people keep it, say, yes. 10 years?
1: Yeah. Um, we make several kind of ranges or sub ranges of wine at the, at the sort of the, the main focus on the property is our estate wines um, and the estate wines are all 100% from our own vineyards. It's a whole process that's and certified and, and the wines are all organic and they sell, you know, m- you know more on the upper end of the, the price spectrum. The two whites, the one is a, a Blanc called the Achteros. And the other one is, is a wine called Fairhead, which is a blend of Roussan, Chenin, and, and, and Viognier. I mean, both of those definitely benefit from aging. You know, the Achtos we only started in 2014. So we've only, you know, four vintages in the bottle. But at the moment, the 14 is, is kind of my favorite, although it's not available anymore. Yeah, I mean, Chenin really does age beautifully. So I would say the whites, as a general rule... I would say six, seven years for sure. They should improve. Mm-hmm. Good vintages maybe ten years. And in the reds, I would say even even a bit longer. We tend to release the red wines about two and a half years after the oh, vintage. vintage. And yeah, I'm definitely you know trying to make the wines with good aging potential.
0: You recently started the Mybert Brothers Wines. One of my favorites is that sensor that you make. You're using traditional techniques there from your grandfather and his brother right yeah so the
1: whole inspiration behind that um, range is i was looking through some of the old albums and records on the on the farm my brother lives in sort of the oldest house on the farm and there's this library that has a lot of journals and things in it and i was going through the journals and, and found records of the you know, the, the winemaking from long, long time ago. And I also found a certificate, which was from the 1904 Cape Agricultural Show. And uh, the certificate was awarded to the Myberg brothers. And uh, it was awarded to a censor that they had produced. Anyway, so this kind of intrigued me. And uh, I was just asking my father about previous generations and... Yeah, it turns out that my father and his brother, they did some farming together, but, but they didn't make wine together. My grandfather and his brother did, you know, a bit of that as well. But my great grandfather and his brother, they had quite an extensive sort of agricultural business that included winemaking. So they made wine on the property. Uh, they also made butter um, and, and a few other things. And they farmed several farms in the area, but they, they kind of consolidated their resources to make wine. Um, so what I've done is I've, I've tried to imagine kind of how they would have made their wine. So it was before the time of cultivated or commercial yeast and um, you know, a lot of additives that, that some wineries use these days. It was also before the time that, um, you, know, you know, there was much new oak in the wines. So they had a you know much more kind of natural style of making wine. So yeah, we're trying to kind of mimic that style of winemaking, and then I've looked at the farms where where they were farming, which are now on neighbouring properties, and I've identified some vineyards from those properties that I think are interesting and, and true to that story. So Sinso is one of them because mm. of the old certificate. So we've we're making. I'm glad you
0: found that certificate. I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, so the Sinso is just a its a very kind of fresh, um, kind of low-ish alcohol interpretation of Sinso. I think the alcohols 12 on the both the 18 and the 17. Um, it's all matured in old barrels. Then absolutely no additives except for a little bit of sulphur before bottling. Right. And then the other interesting wine in that range, I think, is a uh, Muscat d'Alexandrie or, or Hanaput. Yep. And that's also from a neighbor's vineyard it's a dry farmed um, bush vine um, muscat d'Alexandrie vineyard and uh yeah looking back in the records my great grandfather and his brother they also made um, muscat d'Alexandre or Hanapoot.
0: Daryl, just tell me what style is your muscat.
1: Yeah, that's quite an important question because um, you know often muscats in South Africa are, are, are kind of sweet. Um, I guess anywhere in the world, often they're sweet. This is a, a dry uh, muscat, so we we actually pick it um, a little bit earlier, so we, we definitely capture um, you know the you know all the the, the floral muscatty aromas, but we also capture acidity, and we ferment it totally dry, so it's it's a bone dry.
0: And you also make dessert wines that are fantastic. Um, We've had almost every vintage so far. And it's always that wine that we grab at the end of the evening when we have Mm -hmm. guests. And it's just making everybody happy. Normally you make those from your Chenin grapes. You have lots of Chenin on the farm, right? Yeah, Yeah,
1: the first vintage for that was in 2000. Yeah, it was like a little bit of an experiment. I had a good friend at that stage that um, was from the Loire. Uh, and he works with Chinnen over there and he was telling me how they make these dessert wines. And I was looking at one of the vineyards that we have, a Blanc vineyard, planted in 1987. And it's on a south-facing slope and it always gets a lot more vigor than the rest mm. of our, our blank. And I thought, well, let me try and see if we, you know, get the, the sugar levels up through either raisining or botrytis. And we kind of gave it a go and it really worked and it's, it's become an integral part of our mm.
0: And you, you do the botrytis.
1: Yeah, grape, right? yeah. So, what we do is we, we normally pick our grapes in February or March. With this vineyard, we just let the grapes hang. And then, normally, like round about Easter or just before Easter, we start to get a lot of mist in the mornings. Mm. Perfect. And this, this veneer tends to get kind of covered by the mist in the mornings and then the sun comes out late morning or early afternoon. And this combination of kind of misty mornings and sunshine in the afternoon is, is kind of very good for the growth of Botrytis and aria. And as soon as the bunches start getting infected, we'll go through and, and select the infected bunches and make um, our noble late harvest from that.
0: I just wanted to touch a little bit on the 2019 harvest. I know you're in the middle of it. Well, you're almost done, right? So um, just give us a little bit of info on your area and the 2019 harvest.
1: Yeah, so 2019, it's on the back of several sort of very, very dry years. And um, yeah, we kind of entered the harvest with a little trepidation, I guess. Uh, We weren't quite sure how it was going to turn out. Things looked quite good in the vineyards going into harvest. And the harvest kicked off very early. One of our earliest harvests since I've been involved in the farm. And yeah, I must say I've been pretty happy with the quality. Right now we've hit like a little bit of a dead patch. Maybe I should say quiet, quiet patch. Some of our vineyards, you know, the, the the sugar accumulation is sort of seems to have flattened off a bit. So We're now busy waiting for our next batch of of harvesting. So we've got some shinan that we're still waiting on, and some Cabernet. It's always difficult to really judge the the quality of the harvest until all the wines are dry and you've given them a bit of a chance to sort of mm. settle down. I mean, what I can say is I think it's been quite a challenging harvest. Mm. In general, the yields are down on our farm and in the area. There was sort of a, like a variation in, in ripeness levels mm. between vineyards and even in vineyards. So you had to you know, be a bit careful about your, your picking and, and watch mm-hmm. things carefully. It, w- it wasn't an easy harvest. I mean, okay. 15 was, was definitely a lot easier to manage, mm-hmm. as was um, 17. And but
0: luckily you're an experienced winemaker, mm-hmm. so you'll make it work and we'll keep continuing drinking your wine. Now, Aneta is sitting here mm-hmm. listening patiently to me and her husband chatting away. Aneta does a whole lot of other things on this farm. Aneta, tell us more about what's happening here at Eustenburg Winery. Yeah, well the
2: other facets that we have on the farm are, we've got some guest accommodation, um, just a couple of rooms, because there, there are quite a lot of function venues in our area, so it's good to have some accommodation for people that they don't have to drive home at night. And then we've got the tasting room, and we've just started the crawl restaurant. So, the restaurants only open on a Sunday, and the tasting room is also open on a Sunday. We're quite off the beaten track, and there's a bumpy gravel road to get to us. So, we want to make it worthwhile for people who travel down that road. So, on a Sunday, if they get here, they get rewarded with a lovely Sunday lunch and a tasting room where they can choose some old vinyl records and set their mood. Um, If they're not going to have lunch, they can sit and have a cheese platter outside. And we offer a tasting of five of our estate wines at um, 60 rand per person. Yeah, that's what
0: we're up to at the moment. Well, I can highly recommend the food at the Kral. Your brother-in-law is involved with the menu there, right? Um, Tell us a little bit more about the famous chef that is your (laughs) brother-in-law. Well, Christoph,
2: um, yeah, he started many restaurants in South Africa, the first one being at Chamonix.
1: Yeah, Chamonix, yeah.
2: And from there to the Vineyard Hotel, and then he came to Joostenburg Bistro about 15 years ago. Yeah. And,
1: yeah, and take going a step back actually, so my sister Susan is also a chef, and Susan met her husband Christoph Mm-hmm. Uh, they were working together in a in a restaurant in in France. So he was the sous chef and she was the you know the trainee and that's, okay. that's where their love the affair love, started. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, and now Christoph's got the, the restaurant at Glen Ellie mm-hmm. and um, we've opened the tap room as well at Klein Justenberg and now the Kral. But Christoph's very adamant that Lanry is the chef here. So okay. he is involved in the concept and the menu creations but he wants it to be Lanry's baby and, okay. and she's the one who comes out and greets people and mm-hmm. and he says you can you really empower people if you if you make it their own. If you keep yes. if you keep mm. um, kind of too close tabs on them yeah. all the time then they don't yeah. grow by themselves. So yeah. He's very yeah, much so involved.
0: Just for our visitors, I think they'd probably like to know the kind of food they yes. can expect here. So we try, it's, it's, it is very seasonal so, um, mm.
2: and then extremely local. So you're not going to find Norwegian salmon on the menu and you're not going to find um, aubergines in winter. So it's, it's definitely what's, what's in season at the moment and we grow some of the vegetables here in the winery garden and if there are um, leeks then there will be leeks and if there's aubergine then at the moment there are aubergines and peppers and courgettes then that's what what, will, what drives the menu. The menu changes every week um, it's shared food so you book your table for four or six or eight or two people um, but then you don't actually choose a meal on the day you, you get um, family style plates of food placed in the centre of the table and you help yourself off a plate of Karoo lamb and um, potatoes and garden salads.
0: Yeah, and that's actually a really nice way of eating because it feels like you're actually at somebody's house instead of at a restaurant. The only
2: decision you need to make once you're here is which wine to enjoy with your meal. Exactly,
0: yeah, that's lovely. Lastly, we just like to tell the listeners how to get to, you said it's off the beaten track and maybe you should just differentiate between klein and Jürstenberg Winery because there's always a bit of confusion, how to get here, contact details and all that stuff.
2: Yeah, well if you go onto the website www.jürstenberg.co.za you'll see a whole lot of different facets of the business and the winery, which is on the northern side of the N1 highway Jürstenberg farm is where we grow the grapes, make the wine, we have accommodation and a tasting room and the Kral restaurant.
1: And this is the old it's the old family farm with the historical buildings and the old mm-hmm. VAF and, and all that.
2: Yeah, and then the other farm is the Klein Jürstenberg farm which is on the Stellenbosch side of the N1 Highway, so on the southern side of the N1 Highway. And that's where you'll find the bistro, the deli, the events venue for weddings and functions, as well as the Steli's taproom, which is a brewery
0: and a picnic area. Lovely. Well, I hope um, you guys get a lot of visitors and your wines are excellent. I can vouch for that. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Amanda Fisser. I hope you enjoyed it.